Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to a new Bunker Daily. I'm Ros Taylor. It's a very, very, very long way away from the UK, and I'm not just talking about the mileage. New Zealand ended social distancing for the second time on 8th of October. The country had declared itself COVID-free in June, but clamped down again after a small outbreak. And last weekend, it had elections, which Jacinda Ardern's Labour Party won with pretty much a landslide. My WhatsApp was pinging with excitement on Saturday morning, but can Arden keep her momentum going or are there pitfalls ahead? With me to talk about what New Zealand has got right and wrong is Toby Manhire, editor of the spin-off and freelance journalist there. He grew up in New Zealand but came to the UK for a while, editing the Guardian's comment section before returning home in 2010. Welcome to the bunker, Toby. Kia ora, Ros. Nice to hear you. What happened in 2010 that made you think the next decade in the UK might not be that much fun? Was there one event? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I, I, I didn't foresee the catastrophic decision to depart from a fantastic union of countries or an imminent pandemic. It was more just um, had a good decade in the UK, loved the place, um, and then the usual train of having kids and when you grow up in New Zealand, it's pretty hard to deny your own children the chance to live walking distance to the beach and being able to wander around the footpaths barefoot. Inevitably, we'll be talking about Corona later, but first, let's get to Jacinda Ardern, who took 49% of the vote in the election. Tell us a bit about her opponent, Judith Collins. Who is she? Well, I mean, the first thing to say, I suppose, about Judith Collins is that she's the fourth uh, pick your pardon, the third leader of the National Party, which is the right-wing uh, opposition party, the closest thing, analogue being the Conservatives, uh, the third leader of that party in four months, and the third leader this year. And they've had quite a lot of turmoil, upheaval, leaking. You know, it's just been a really difficult time. So Judith Collins came in with, I think, something like about eight or nine weeks, maybe ten weeks to go before the election. She's been around for a while and has wanted the job for a while. And at last they kind of looked around and had no one left. So they gave it to her. She's a, she's a conviction politician, as she describes herself. She's, she's someone who's interesting in that she is an admirer of Margaret Thatcher and also an admirer of Jeremy Corbyn, as far as British politics are concerned, uh, because they're conviction politicians. And what she can't abide is centrists who do incremental change with the fashion of the moment, which is an implicit criticism of some of the people who preceded her. So she was she's quite a well-known figure in New Zealand. She's who's sort of acquired a nickname called the Crusher, which relates to a policy that she oversaw, which involved crushing boy races, people who drive around the streets at night fast, crushing their cars by way of punishment. She's a sort of forged a reputation as a kind of no-nonsense, tough-talking with a bit of mischief. But apart from a few good performances in the debates, it's been a bit of a debacle of a campaign for her lot. 
So now she's pretty much failed, and for left-wingers on this side of the world, New Zealand looks in a pretty enviable place right now. But her handling of COVID aside, which we probably all know about, what do New Zealanders like about Jacinda Ardern? Well, you know, she came to power in 2017. We have elections every three years here on a, a herself coming in very shortly before the election, herself a kind of Hail Mary by the Labour Party, who themselves have had a series of leadership changes. And she came to power promising positivity, relentlessly positive was the the catch cry. And she did sort of bring an energy, a relative youth. She's 40 now, so she was 37 when she first became Labour leader. A confidence and assuredness, and she didn't change a lot of the policy platform of the party, but sort of changed the I suppose, the spirit of it. And then she had a baby in office, uh, not literally in her office, but while in office, um, which was the first person in power since Benazir Bhutto to do that. And, you know, I think she, I think she, it's probably fair to say she lifted the confidence of the country a bit, walked the world stage, took the baby Neve to the UN General Assembly, stuff like that. Everyone has weaknesses, though, even Jacinda Ardern. So well, what are hers? Well, as I say, it's a three-year term, so it's it's shorter than British people are used to. But there hasn't been quite the level of delivery on policy that what was promised at the outset. It's, it's fair to say that the term has been punctuated by some pretty catastrophic events when we consider uh, the the mosque shooting, which people will have will have noticed at the time when um, a white supremacist charged into two mosques in Christchurch and killed a lot of people. The response to that sucked a lot of oxygen out of the place. Um, there was a there was a volcanic eruption and then of course this coronavirus, which as it has with you, just absorbs everything else right you know so so there have been there are some there are some pretty reasonable caveats to that but there were prom- one of the main pledges was a massive house building program called kiwi build which was to build 100,000 houses and solve the housing crisis and that that came to almost nothing there were other promises on transport that fell short so while there were some advances in areas uh around a a kind of package for families and so on. It wasn't quite, she'd promised a transformational government. I think most people would agree that it hasn't been that, or at least hasn't been that yet. So is housing the big issue in New Zealand at the moment in terms of domestic policy, apart from COVID? Well, you know, if we hadn't, if COVID hadn't happened, I think it would have been a very big talking point at the election. One of the, one of the um, impacts of it for us here, of course, is that it has immediately throttled if not completely stopped immigration so one of the issues was population growth and not being able to have the housing stock to deal with them so that's so it's absolutely yes it's still an issue perhaps slowed a little bit but housing has become inaccessible to whole generations really apart from the very rich or the very well looked after by their parents um so that remains an issue and it's gonna it's gonna it's gonna come back once hopefully, touch wood, once we move on past the immediate crisis. You also had a couple of referendums at the same time as the election, and the results aren't Mm. out until 30th October, I think. 
um, but they're very interesting in themselves. One was to legalise cannabis. What are the chances of a yes vote for that? Pretty knife's edge, to be honest. I think it will probably fail slightly. Uh, the, the other one was on assisted dying, which is was polling pretty well. It's very weird that's not counting the votes for a few weeks. I think it's, it's ridiculous, to be honest. Um, but they want, you know, they insist that they want to be able to do it separately and get it right. So we, yeah, you're right, we won't know until the end of the month. I think it's going to struggle. The two referendum questions kind of got a bit lost here. There were no, there weren't sort of organised sides. There was a bit of a bit of a mess, and the argument for legalisation of cannabis got a bit lost and got a bit uh, incoherent. Might be overstating it, but it it didn't have that kind of really crisp, clear. Um, argument in a way that the no campaign, which, to be honest with you, tipped over into misinformation uh, on quite a few occasions, it just had a clarity about it. And the one uh, for assisted death is, I think, very interesting, certainly for us in Britain, where that is not even, I think, thinkable in, in domestic politics. And yet you say that one has a good chance of passing. Was it not extremely controversial? Uh, I mean, less than I would have thought, you know. Like, um, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it'll, I think it's polling around sort of 60, 40 for among the decided. So it seems like it'll be all right. And it, there, are, there are a lot of protections in there, uh, more than there have been in, in other legislatures. So you have to get sign-off from, you know, different doctors. You can't go through the process for uh, a lot of ailments, there has to be a has to be a there has to be a very meet, have to meet a very high bar for it to be permissible. But it, it's interesting that that uh, you would have thought there would have been a backlash from a lot of um, maybe older groups. I don't know, but there people a lot of personal stories, a lot of people talking about their own parents and loved ones, and it seemed like it went through more smoothly. Then yeah, then, then I would have then I would have then I would have guessed a couple of years ago certainly. Let's move on to COVID. Inevitably, it was handled very very differently in New Zealand from in Britain and indeed the rest of Europe. From an early stage, mm. the New Zealand government decided to go for a zero COVID strategy and it closed borders very early on and then locked down. How long a lockdown did it take to uh, to achieve zero COVID? I think it was about seven weeks that we were in the strictest version of the lockdown and then uh maybe another two or three that were in a more moderate version but that probably doesn't sound like that long to you um one of the one of the one of the smart things that was done early on and this was Jacinda Ardern's initiative personally as I understand it was to introduce that alert level system which itself had been uh borrowed from Singapore I think which introduced a similar thing after the SARS crisis, but it immediately created a kind of scaffold, I guess, or a system of understanding in contrast to what happened in Britain, as far as I could see. It took a lot longer there to try things like that, that, that people kind of understood these are the terms. Uh, and there was a really high level of compliance, higher than I would have expected. I mean, New Zealand is a very, fairly compliant, fairly cohesive place. But... Um, People went along with it, which made, which of course makes a massive difference, right? So, after things started to really get stamped out, 
then there was a real sense of jubilation almost. And then, huh, and then it came back. Then it sort of snuck back in after it being clear in, in, in August in South Auckland. And then people's heads started to drop a bit and you could feel as though there was a little bit less. It was, seemed, seemed almost hubristic. You know, there had been so much, you know, delight at the ability to get back to something approximating normal life. But we're back there now, and um, I went to this all. Uh, this 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 is not to brag, but yesterday I went to Eden Park to watch the All Blacks play Australia with forty seven thousand other people, and tomorrow I'm going to a movie premiere with probably seven or eight hundred other people, and I went to a cafe for lunch, and you know that I mean everything is pretty normal here. Of course, it's not normal insofar as, as you say, the borders are closed. So that changes a lot of things. And it, for people who want to travel in or out or have family, they want to see all those sorts of things. But as far as domestic life goes, we're, we're, we're back to something pretty close to normal. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about the closed border because obviously New Zealand does have quite a bit of tourism and inevitably mm. there's a price to be paid for a closed border. Uh, is that going to start being painful in the next few months for New Zealand? Well, it's certainly true that, as, I mean, tourism was by a whisker over agriculture. New Zealand's classes, New Zealand's biggest export industry. So the, 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 the income from tourism is massive, was massive. But having said that, it's not like there's much international tourism happening at the moment anyway, is there? So that industry was going to be facing a crisis irrespective. And really what the reality is now, though, is that a vaccine is really important to New Zealand to get back on its feet, internationally speaking, because well, everything's been chucked in that basket. You can't easily just gradually increase it. Uh, and the, the test, I suppose, will come if, if, if we're unlucky collectively, as the, the humans of the earth and there is no vaccine forthcoming in the next nine months or whatever, then then there will be a crunch point at some point for New Zealand. Because if testing gets really efficient and fast and if contact tracing becomes really efficient and fast and if treatments become very efficient, then that changes the scales in terms of measuring the you know, life and how, and how you can live so so hopefully we i mean we're you know i think that broadly there's a there's a lot of support for the measures taken uh, because we can just see what's happening around the world in the in the anglosphere and more widely and i don't think there are many people who would swap put it that way but 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 there will be a there there, there could be for our sake hopefully not but there could be a point where it, it becomes a more difficult decision to stick to. Test and trace is pretty much, I would say, in the process of completely failing here. Um, but it seems to have worked in New Zealand. Why do you think it did? Quite early on, there was... I mean, it wasn't up to scratch when the outbreak happened. And there was a, a report completed early on by someone called Aisha Varel, who as it happens, has just been elected as a Labour MP. But she's a very clever health official who's got experience with measles and other infectious diseases. And 
wrote quite a damning report about the state of the New Zealand contact tracing system, and the, there was an overhaul of it, and it's now much more effective and streamlined and not having to do anything at the moment because there's, there's apart from there being one case that snuck in the other day from a ship, it's there, there isn't anything to, to trace. Uh, so, so that system now is up and running well and it's met what they're calling a, a gold standard in terms of the ability to be able to, I think, track 80% of people within 48 hours, but it's massively over overachieving on that. There has, there's also the sort of digital contact tracking or contact tracing system, which I think you guys have started getting a bit, um, which is one of those things where you'd scan every, 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 it's every place you go to, it's, it's mandatory to have a barcode and you scan it on your phone with the barcode. But it's not mandatory to, to do the scanning <laughs> or to have the app on your phone. And it's still not quite up to, the level of use and compliance that it would that we'd like it to be the one of the issues of course is that the longer you go without any COVID in the country the more relaxed you become and the more relaxed you become the less you think oh, I can be bothered pulling out my phone and scanning that thing but there has there was an example during the last outbreak with one family who traveled around the country a bit and one of the people had been using the app um, diligently and that sped up the ability to be able to contact trace massively. Toby, I am infinitely um, gen- uh, jealous of your situation at the moment. Um, I hope one day I will be able to visit your uh, your country and find out um, how you've how you've got it so right. But in the meantime, thanks so much for talking to us. A pleasure. Lovely to talk to you, Ross. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily. And if you want to help us keep podcasting, you could back us on Patreon, the crowdfunding platform. You'll get every episode ad-free and the night before general release if we can get it finished in time. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out the details. We'll see you tomorrow. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ross Taylor and produced by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold, and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.